Last week, uh, we began this series that we entitled, Loved Even in Spite of Me. And uh, I'd like to ask you to open your notes in the bulletin. If you are visiting with us today, uh, you'll find two pieces of information in the bulletin pertaining this series. The first one is an insert, a blue sheet of paper <coughs> that has two things. The first thing on the, on the front of the, of the sheet are the notes that we'll take as questions for our life groups uh, during the week. On the back of that sheet, we'll find... We'll find information on the life groups, their locations, their times, and places. On the bulletin, on the side of the bulletin, right after the order of the worship, you'll find the notes on the right side that we'll use for today's message. So let's turn to them. <coughs> we learned last week that Jesus had a vision for his church. And in this vision to his church, he shares this vision in the forms of letters. These letters were given by the angel received by God, given to John the disciple as he was in the island of Patmos. And he receives these letters in his vision and he sends them to the churches. The church, as we learned last week, was to be the visual representation of Christ on earth. Last week we learned from the church of Ephesus that God had a plan for his church and he wanted to share to the world that he is a God of love that loves beyond measure, beyond obstacles, and beyond time. Today we'll turn to the letter to the church of Smyrna. And from this letter we'll learn a couple of things. Because today I want to talk to you about struggles, about problems. If you lived on this earth for a little while, you've already had some. So the question is not, am I going to be in trouble? It's when and how often. Because oftentimes, like the saying goes, when it rains, it pours. And sometimes when we see the light at the end of a tunnel, what it is is just another train coming. That similar situation happened to this man and, and, and what, what we think that it is an urban legend. This man was hurt at work. So he writes, he writes to the insurance company about his incident. And he says, I am writing in response to your request for additional information for block number three of the accident reporting form. I put poor planning as the cause of the accident. You said in your letter, he responds to the insurance company, that I should explain more fully and I trust the following detail will suffice. I am an amateur radio operator and on the day of the accident, I was working alone on, my, on the top of my 80-foot tower. When I was... When I had completed my work, I discovered that I had, over the course of several trips up the tower, brought up about 300 pounds of tools and spare hardware. Rather than carry them, now they are needed tools and materials down by hand, I decided to lower the items down in a small barrel by using a pulley, which was fortunately attached to, the, to the, a pole on the top of the tower. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up the top of the tower and loaded the tools and materials into a barrel. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 300 pounds of tools and materials. You will note in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weighed only 155 pounds. Due to my surprise, being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate of speed up the side of the tower. In the vicinity of about 40 foot level, I met the barrel coming down. This explains my fractured skull and broken collarbone. Slowly, only slightly, I continue my rapid ascent not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. 
Fortunately, by this time, I regained my presence, of, my presence of mind and was able to hold onto the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of tools hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the tools, the barrel now weighed approximately 20 pounds. I refer to you again by my weight in box number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent to the side of the tower. In the vicinity of the 40-foot level, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles and the laceration of my legs and lower body. The encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell on the pile of tools and materials. And fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, that as I laid on the tools in pain, unable to stand, and watching the empty barrel 80 feet above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let the rope go. I'm pretty sure this is not real. It's just an urban legend. But life is something like that. When we face trouble, it's usually followed by some more. And this is the case of the story in the time of the church in its mirror. And this is the letter that John, inspired by Jesus, writes to the church. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Is there in your notes? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, This thing says the first and the last who was dead and now came to life. Smyrna was a city that was only 35 miles away from the city of Ephesus. It was known as the Jewel of Asia Minor. Ephesus was a very important city and was the, probably the most important of all the churches in Revelation. But Smyrna was the most beautiful. In fact, it was known as a paradise of municipality vanity. It had the largest amphitheater. It had beautiful temples. And it was known by one thing in the middle of the city leading to the port. And it was their city of gold. This city was wide and beautiful. And when the sunset was beginning, the shine of the sun would reflect of the city. And it looked golden. Perhaps that is the image that John used to describe heaven with the streets of gold. But Jesus writes to this church and he says, I am the first. Are you breathing this morning? You can't have excuses that you can't hear me today. I am the first and the last. Good, you're waking up. That means that Jesus died and lived again. That means that Jesus has been from the beginning and will be there at the end. That means that Jesus has been there all along because Jesus has the experience. So the reason why Jesus writes this letter to the church in Smyrna, it is because whatever suffering, whatever pain, whatever trouble they might be going through, Jesus has been there. That is why we learned this morning that Jesus experienced your suffering. Whatever you're going through today, let me tell you that Jesus is not only aware, but he knows what you're going through. Jesus not only has a knowledge of what you're going through right now, but Jesus has felt the same pain. Jesus is not only aware of your feelings as you go through the problem, but Jesus has also felt the same feelings. Verse 9, he says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but are the synagogue 
of Satan. I know, Jesus says. There are two words in the Greek in the original text that could be translated as knowing. The first one is Ido. Can you say it, Ido? Ido. And Ido is knowing about something like when you are talking with friends about something that occurred and was shown in the news, and then you say, Oh, yeah, I heard about that. It's not a direct knowledge, it's not a direct experience, it's something that you happen to hear about and you're aware of the, its existence. That is Ido. But the second word, and that is the one used in this text, is the word ginosco. Can you say ginosco? Ginosco. If you know Spanish, it sounds like conosco. I know. Ginosco is a direct experience. It's such a direct experience that when the, when the scholars of the Bible translated the Old Testament, the Hebrew, into Greek, when it says in the text that Adam knew Eve, you know what I'm talking about? It used, they used the word ginosco. It is an intimate, personal experience, uh, and, and, and the knowledge of that experience is because the person, the individual, has been there. So what Jesus says, I know your works, I know your tribulations, I know your poverty. You know why I know that, Jesus says? Because I've been there. See, when the, when the neighbor had suffered a loss, the story says, this little girl, five years old, went to the house. And the mother was looking for her. And she didn't know where he was. Sometime later, the girl returns, and the mother is waiting at the door. And she says, where were you? And she said, I was at the neighbor's. Why were you there? Because I saw her crying, and I went to console her. The mother turns to the little girl and asks, and what did you say? The little girl responds, I, I didn't say anything. I just saw her crying, sat on her lap, and hugged her. That is exactly what Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna. I understand your pain. I know your tears. I am with you. See, in the year 100, more or less of, uh, of our era, the Roman Empire had grown so big, so big, and the roads had been paved to, to all the kingdom that to, in order to protect the kingdom, in order to keep the kingdom united, Rome had to do something. And their best idea, in fact, was a great idea, was to install something known as a Pax Roma. And the Pax Roma was the idea that as long as your city, your town, your country belong to the Roman Empire, you will be protected, you will have peace. That's what the word Pax means in Latin. So what happened was that the seas were protected. There were no pirates because the Roman navy was going through the ocean in the Mediterranean Sea. And the roads were protected because the Roman army were patrolling the roads. But that was not free. That protection, that peace came with a cost. See, Pax Romana became something more than just protection. It became a religion. Because see, people in those days were so, so secularized, but at the same time they were so religious. Because they believed in any God and everything. So they figure, because we are enjoying this peace, because we are enjoying these this moments uh, of peace in our country, in our land, and when we have the protection of the Romans, they are like God to us. So we have to worship them. The Romans enjoy the idea. Who wouldn't, right? So they installed something that Caesar became like God. And Caesar had to be worshipped like Lord. In fact, they had something called the Dia Roma. And that meant that Caesar had to be worshipped. There was a competition in about 50 cities competed to, in this contest to build a temple to Caesar. Guess who won? Smyrna. 
So Smyrna being this city where the Pax Romana had its home, every citizen had to go through a process of claiming Caesar as their Lord. So everyone needed to go to the temple to Odia Roma, and they had to burn incense to Caesar, claiming Caesar is Lord. And this is where the problems began for the Christians. Because if you were a Christian, you could not claim Caesar as your Lord. And you would say, well, that was not much of a problem. You could go and just say, well, you know, it doesn't mean anything. I know that he's not God. But we've learned that the moment that we compromise on something simple, we're not ready for the difficult trials. And the people in the Smyrna, the church in the Smyrna was, was pressured because they had to worship Caesar in a public demonstration, but that was not the problem, the main problem. There was a bigger problem, and the bigger problem was that all the Christians in Smyrna once they were tested, like everybody else, to see if Jesus could be their Lord, they would receive a certificate saying that for a year, you are a faithful follower of the Lord Caesar. And that certificate needed to be displayed at your business. Have you ever eaten at a restaurant that has something lower than an A? You know, when I go to a restaurant and I see a B, I just go, <laughs> but can you imagine if you had a, a, if you went to a restaurant that had an F on it? You would not go. But that's exactly what happened to the Christians in Smyrna. Because see, if they had a business where they built things, people would not sell to them because they had an F. People would not go to the businesses because they had an F. They didn't have the certificate that, Jesus, that, that Caesar was Lord because they were faithful to Jesus and that impeded them from being successful at their businesses. So now they became poor. I know that you are poor, but Jesus says, I also know that you are rich. And it says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, for are a synagogue of Satan. See, there were also spies. There were also spies among the Christians in Smyrna. People who were faithful to Caesar, not faithful to Jesus. And this is some of the blasphemy, some of the, the lies that they told about the Christians in Smyrna. First of all, they would say, well, they're traitors because they don't pray to Caesar. They pray to Jesus. And they're also immoral. They're immoral because they have these celebrations. These celebrations where they divide the family. In fact, they call them agape feasts. Agape is another word for love. And as you know, not every Christian that was married, went to synagogue or followed Jesus with their spouses. So they thought that these Christians were having some immoral celebration in homes while dividing their family because their spouses were not invited. And also they said they're cannibals because they eat the body and drink the blood. So these were some of the lies that these spies were telling about the Christians in Smyrna. They said they were, but in reality, they weren't. And, and isn't it true that the worst feeling is to trust in somebody, but that somebody that you trusted betrayed you? Paul 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, it's in your notes. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. So as much as you suffer by being faithful to Jesus, so is the comfort that Jesus offers as you abide in him. And 1 Peter uh, this co confirms this text in chapter 2, verse 21. For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So this text tells us, family, that Jesus, Jesus understand your suffering because he himself experienced it. The second lesson we learn about this letter to the church in Smyrna is that Jesus experienced your pressure. And we have to see, see life from the eyes of Jesus. See, Jesus also suffered extreme pressure. To begin with, let's look at his family. We know about Joseph up to the age of 12. After that, we don't know where Joseph is. In fact, all historians agree that Joseph died being young. So we know that Jesus had to carry, as being the oldest son, had to carry the load to provide for his family. But on top of that, you think his children were grateful. His, I mean, his uh, siblings were grateful that he provided for them. But no, because when Jesus declares that he is the, the Messiah, he's the Son of God, none of his brothers and sisters believe in him. So if you think that because you follow Jesus and your family is not a Christian and they talk about you, you know what? Jesus understands that. Jesus also suffered political pressure. Of course, he could not say that he would not pay taxes to Caesar. Remember the story? Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but we give God what belongs to God. He had that pressure. And not only that, but the Pharisees didn't like him because he had a following. He was a great teacher and they were considered the teachers. What authority are you teaching by? And the Sadducees didn't like him because Jesus talked about angels and resurrection and the Sadducees didn't believe on that. So wherever Jesus was, there was always pressure. There was social pressure. Because see, whenever Jesus went, even in the time when he was mourning the death of, uh, of uh, his cousin John the Baptist, he goes and has to feed 5,000 people because they were there to listen to him and to heal them. Imagine everywhere you went, the Bible tells us there was a crowd waiting for him. He went from one side to the other of the lake and there was a crowd waiting for him. And the sick and the lame and the, everybody's waiting for him to heal them. That's tremendous social pressure. Thank God that I just put my phone on vibrator. And that's it. But he also had spiritual pressure. When he was at the garden, before his arrest, he prayed, Father, let this cup pass without me drinking it. Remember, Jesus' divinity was covered by his humanity. Did Jesus want wanted to die? No. In fact, that was him asking the Father, Father, if there's a plan B, let's do it. I don't want to die. And the temptation of, Father, if you give me three more years, can you imagine what can be done in three more years? So Jesus had the spiritual pressure of being the Messiah. Verse 10, Revelation chapter 2. This is what he says to Smyrna. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into, into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Don't be afraid. You are going to be tested. Now, the question here, we understand everything except one phrase, 10 days. Because we know the suffering that the people of Smyrna and the Christians in the 2nd and 3rd century endure was way longer than 10 days. 
In fact, being a Christian in those early centuries of the faith, it was a question of when is the next persecution going to start. Because there were several. Every emperor began a persecution, a, a quest to, to terminate Christianity. So the question was, when is the next one going to start? For example, Trajan, the, the emperor, in, in 100 D.C., he began a quest to, to, to kill all the leaders of the Christian church. He figured if we kill the leaders, the church will die. But instead of disseminating the church, their blood became seeds for the gospel. Diocletian, in the year 303, began a persecution. And this basically was the last one. Because 10 years later, in, 13, in 313, when Constantine becomes the emperor, he declares in the city of Milan that every Christian was to be benevolently treated by the Roman Empire. And you know the story. He became a Christian. Questionably, but he became a Christian. So these 10 days that are prophesied, in essence, were 10 years, because remember, everything in the book of Revelation is? All right, you remember from last week. Good. It's symbolic. So these 10 days, we're taking for the principle that one day is equivalent of one year. So this is the end of the persecution. The promise to the Smyrna church is that this is the last one. It's interesting sometimes to, to understand what going through difficulties is when we haven't gone through. Especially the first time. I've told you before that, that for a few summers I was a lifeguard. And one of my, my responsibilities was to teach children to swim. I was a water safety instructor. The sessions lasted two weeks. Four days, Monday to Thursday. And on the second Thursday, every child who was done with their course, with their sessions, ready to move on to the next level, they would have to pass a test composed of different skills. But one of those skills, especially for the lower levels, for the little children, was that they had to jump off the low diving board, the, the meter high. And, and, and that was the moment when all the parents go and take their cameras. You remember? Take their cameras. You know, now they just take their cell phones. But, but back then they would take their cameras and, and, and they would be waiting for the moment where their child would actually jump off the diving board. But there was always that kid who did not want to jump. You know, we had a technique, and we would tell them, you know, put your toes over the edge, one foot back, bend your knee, and just lean forward and follow your hands. And you would see kids going, but never pass that. And, Come on, I'm here. You know, and we were there in the water. This is before lifeguards used the rescue tubes. We used to do it a cappella back then. Yeah. So, so we were in the water, treading water, treading water, and come on, jump, jump. And it, it, we had to catch them. As soon as they were in the water, we have to bring them out. So we're there, and, you know, there's a line of kids, and you get tired. So your smile starts turning into, jump now. <laughs> but always something amazing happened. Once that child will jump for the first time? Almost always, the next phrase was, can I jump again? Can I go again? Because see, once you go through it and you discover that there's somebody to hold you, that there's somebody there in the water, that it doesn't matter how deep you go, the lifeguard is going to get you or bring you up and guide you to the side of the pool, you know that you can trust, regardless of how many times you jump, he's always going to be there to get you back. That is exactly, family, what Jesus is saying. You're going to go through some trouble. You're going to go through some struggle. You're going to go through some difficulties. But you know what? I am going to be 
there. That is why Jesus, in the letter to the Smyrna church, he said, I will offer you a reward. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be heard by the second death. And we just open a can of worms right now. Let me tell you about it. Jesus is saying here that if there is a second death, there must be a good. You're awake. So there's two kinds of death. So the question is, what does that mean? We have to go to the rules that we learned last week. And the rules that we learned, one of the rules was that in order to understand the book of Revelation, we have to understand the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians says, chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. And I'm going to put it on the screen in, in case you don't have your Bible. For the Lord himself, who's the Lord? Jesus. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. That means this is the second coming. Why do we call it the second coming? Because the first coming was Christmas. So this is the second coming. Jesus will descend with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. If somebody is rising first, that is saying that somebody is going to rise second. Okay. Why is Jesus, I mean Paul, saying that Jesus is going to speak loudly? You must remember, you've seen the movie on Eastern when Jesus is outside of the tomb of Lazarus. Right? So Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Let's do a little experiment here. Are you ready? Okay, let me ask you. You know your own name, right? I hope so. <laughs> you know your own name, right? You haven't fallen asleep? Because right now I'm going to preach to the choir. Okay, so you know your name. You know your name. At the count of three, you're going to say your name loudly. You ready? Are you ready? Okay, one, two, three. Okay, the rules were you're going to say your name loudly. Loudly, okay? Loudly, like you mean it. I'm pretty sure you know your name, so you don't have to think about it. All right, one more time. The count of three, you're going to say your name loudly. One, two, three. Okay, that was much better. Now, let me ask you a question. How many names did you hear clearly? The only name that you heard clearly was yours, right? Yours. Now, this is why Jesus, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come forward. If Jesus had just said, come forward, all the people dead would have come out. But see, now, second question, how did it sound when everybody said their name? Loud, like a thunder, right? Now imagine when all the names of all the people who believed in Jesus and died through the ages are called out by God. So with a loud voice, with a voice of thunder, with the voice of the archangel, Every single one who died believing in Jesus will hear his and her name and they will come out of the clutches of death and they will be back to life. That is the first resurrection. Why did they have to be resurrected? Because they went through the first death. Now, we have a problem. Because there are some who are not going to be resurrected at that moment. They'll be part of the second resurrection. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain be caught up together with them. Are you with me? So those are the ones who died believing in Jesus. But those of us who did not die before Jesus comes will be caught up together in the clouds. And it says that... We will meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So that means, family, that those who were alive when Jesus returned, and he calls those who died believing in him, those groups, those two groups together will unite in the clouds and will 
meet the Lord in the air. What happens to those who didn't believe in Jesus and were alive? The Bible tells us, and they would claim, they were, they were proclaimed to the rocks to fall on them. And the Bible tells that in a merciful way, they will die with the shine of His glory. So they will have also a first death. So if the redeemed that were alive and the remain and the redeemed that were resurrected will be in the air, in the clouds, in heaven with Jesus on earth. We have those who died with the shine of his glory and those who did not resurrect. And those two groups have one thing in common. They did not believe on Jesus. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. It's on the screen. But the rest of the dead did not live again. This dead that we're talking about, the ones who stayed on, on earth. Until the thousand years were finished. Because what happened was the first resurrection. Verse 6. Blessed and holy. Well, let me, let me go back a little bit. This a thousand years. In, 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 in theology school, they taught us to call that the millennium because it's a thousand, right? Makes sense. But in reality, it's not a thousand years. It's a long period of time. Because, see, the first thing we're going to do when we get to heaven, remember, everything in Revelation is symbolic, right? When we get to heaven, we're going to be in front of Jesus. And the first thing we're going to do when we get there is, Jesus, I have a question. You know, we used to live in this house, and my neighbor, he was a horrible person. Every time the bulb went over the fence, he gave us back, but he was punctured by a knife. You know, he never let us park on his side of the street. He was an awful man. Why is he here? <laughs> or questions like, um, Jesus, you know, when I went to church, you know, our pastor was so nice. You know, he was such a cool guy. He was colorblind, but he was so awesome. He always smiled and told us stories. Why isn't he here? I haven't seen him. You know what I'm talking about? We're going to ask about those things that we don't understand. Why they happen. The only one that has the answer is Jesus. So, I have some questions that I want to ask. Believe me, I have a list. And I'm sure you do too. And if you don't have questions yet, you will have them when you get there. So Jesus is going to sit with each one of us and he's going to answer all those questions. And the reason why is because those questions are for us, the redeemed, to get assurance that what he did, it was just, fair, and out of love. So once that is done, the millennium ends. The millennium ends. And we come back to earth. When we come back to earth, who's on earth? The dead who did not believe in Jesus. Those who died the first death and those who died with the coming of his glory. With the glory of his coming. Something like that. So they're on earth and they have one thing in common. They are dead. Verse 6, Revelation 20. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part of the first resurrection. Are you with me? What resurrection do you want to be part? The first. Over such, listen to this, the second death has no power. What's the second death? When the Holy City descends when everybody who is citizen of heaven now, all the redeemed come down with the angels and, and the glory of God come down. The devil now has a chance to back in, be back in business after he was chained for a thousand years. Because now all those who were dead, who did not believe in Jesus, they will resurrect. The videos are played and everybody is aware that Jesus is just, 
merciful and loving, now they say, we accept our punishment because you have been for Jesus. You are the true God, the only God. And in that moment, the unfallen will see that Jesus is Lord. The redeemed will see that Jesus is Lord. And the fallen will see that Jesus is Lord. And then every eye will see him. Every knee will bow that Jesus is the Lord. And family, two things would happen. Those who believed in Jesus would go to eternal life. And those who did not received the punishment of fire. That is what we call hell. We believe that hell is not a place. We believe that hell is an event. And it's called eternal punishment in the Bible because after that, there's nothing that's coming. And then it says, uh, verse 6, Revelation 20, But they shall be priests, those who are, have no part of the second, uh, second death, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Luke chapter 6, verse 23 says, Rejoice in the day and leap for joy, for indeed the reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. So today I have to tell you, my friend, I have to tell you, my brother, my sister, that all the pain that you're going through today, all the suffering, all the pressure that you live in today is not in vain. Jesus is taking note. Jesus is there with you, and Jesus will guide you through. And as dark as it gets, Jesus has promised that he's going to get you out of the depth, and he's going to take you to the shore. Polycarp was uh, the bishop, the pastor of Smyrna. Nowadays, nobody names their children Polycarp. Maybe that's a good thing. But Polycarp was one of those Christians who was persecuted in Smyrna. During his persecution, Polycarp was hidden in, in secret places. And the soldiers captured this little girl who knew where Polycarp was. And when they captured this little girl, they took her. And it was... informed to Polycarp that this little girl had been tortured because of him. He went out of his hiding place and called the guards who were looking for him. And he said, you know what, guys, But we, it's late already. Before we go, come in for dinner. And they went in his house to have dinner. And as they were having dinner, Polycarp said, okay, before we go, let me pray for my church. And as he prayed, he voluntarily left with the guards who now took him to where the commanding officer was waiting outside in his chariot. The commander told him, Polycarp, this is your chance. Say, say G uh, Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp said, no. Jesus has been faithful to me to this point. I cannot be unfaithful to him. So he said, Polycarp, you're a good man. Just say it. Because if you don't, I have to take you to the proconsul. Polycarp said, I can't do it. So Polycarp was taken to the proconsul, who on that day was holding a, 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 a feast at the arena where the gladiators were about to fight and the beasts were going to be losing. Polycarp was taken to the center of the arena. And from his balcony, the, the, the proconsul said, Polycarp, recant Jesus and, cl and claim to Caesar. He said, 86 years I have served him. I'm not about to deny him now. The proconsul said, deny Jesus and claim to Caesar. And Polycarp said, if you want to hear me speak, you will hear me speak. Let me share the gospel with you. Can you imagine there in the arena? Open your Bibles to John 3.16. So the proconsul said, Polycarp, I'm going to release the beast. The, the, the proconsul said, and Polycarp said, bring him on. Well, he didn't say that. He said, like, release him. 
I like bringing up, bring him up there better. You know? So they tied him to a post. And they burn him. Polycarp died, died knowing that he will have a crown. Polycarp died knowing that being faithful to Jesus is the greatest reward that any man can experience. Polycarp died knowing that there was not suffering nor pain nor pressure greater than the love of Jesus cannot sustain. Polycarp knew that beyond the other side of death, the next voice that he was going to hear was not going to be the proconsul. It was going to be the voice of Jesus calling him, Polycarp, live again. And Polycarp said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. And Father, as we pray today, we can only think that as we listen to this letter that was written to Smyrna, our suffering is just the instrument that God uses to help us to live, to help us to live a life and let Him be the one taking control. That as we go through suffering, it is not us who caused it. It is Jesus that has allowed it so that we can become the people that He wants us to be. And as we listen to this song, let's meditate on the place, on the circumstances, on the, on the challenges that we're facing today and how we plan to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ. Let's listen. Take my promise and 
Father, we pray that today we have the courage enough to let you take our lives and mold it to your will. Father, today we pray that as we go through our suffering, we have received a taste of your comforting balm. Father, today we pray that today we received enough, enough hope to, to trust that even as we go through problems, as we go through struggles, as we go through pressure and, and pain, there is a reward that is greater than any of it. And Father, we pray that the hope of your coming becomes our goal and source of comfort. In Jesus' name we pray.